presence to worship him this hour. We honor and exalt him. We kneel to him in prayer. Our words are but a silence unless we do as he desires. For to whom much has been given, much more shall be required. To whom much has been given, much more shall be required. You have given gold and silver, will you give to him your lives? Will you Much more shall be required. To seek the lost and hungry and feed them with his word. To reach out to our enemies and embrace them with his love. shall be required. You have given gold and silver. Will you give to him your lives? Will you labor with your Savior? Will you do as he desires? For to whom much has been given, much more shall be required for to whom much has been given much more shall be It's good to see Tanya getting back into singing, and the blend on that song was amazing. It was really good. I handed out some sheets this morning. I'm not going to ask how many of you guys filled them out, okay? But uh, <laughs> that, that you did as we move forward into the message this evening. The topic tonight is uh, going to be four principles uh, to consider when trying to change your spouse. That would be the proper title for the message. And I think many marriages are frustrated because their spouse has problems. How many of you have a spouse who has problems? Anybody? No, okay, all of us, okay. So well, our spouses have problems and we get frustrated by it and they get on our nerves and we wish they would just change, right? You just wish they would wake up one day and poof, they're different, right? 
Um, maybe your husband yells at you when he comes in the door and says, why aren't these toys picked up off the floor yet? Or uh, the wife, as soon as you walk in the door, she's got her honey-do list, right? Okay. If you guys want an interesting entertaining treat, look up uh, the Drip Drip song on, on YouTube. That'll, that'll, be, that'll be a good video for you to watch, okay? Amanda's making some of the faces. No, I'm just teasing. <laughs> so, okay. But, uh, but we can have the, these conflicts in our marriages, and we feel like nothing is ever going to change, and there's, and there's always a fight, there's always a battle because of the differences that exist between us. And little things tend to eat away at our marriage. And maybe you're not, um, you're not uh, discouraged by your marriage, but you're struggling to feel happy. You aren't miserable, but you aren't necessarily overwhelming with joy in the way that your marriage is. And so you're thinking, you're probably thinking in your mind, if I could just change my spouse, my life would become so much easier and so much greater. Our marriage would be so great if, if he would just change or if she would just change. This past week in VBS, our theme was experiencing change. And in life, you go through a process of growth physically. And at every stage of physical growth, you go through changes. Change is a natural part of growing. And in our marriages, if your marriage is just on autopilot and it is just coasting, it isn't growing. It isn't becoming what God wants it to be. And you aren't experiencing that, that growth in your marriage. We have to have change within our marriages. Um, being, but there are some things that seem like they just will never change. Uh, statistically, they say that 60% of the problems and issues you see in your spouse will always be there. I'll give you one example. How many, I won't ask, okay. <laughs> so, no, if you have a spouse who is consistently late to get everywhere that they are going, okay? Have you, have, you, have you ever seen somebody who is consistently late ever all of a sudden just poof, magically start being on time and their life has changed now? I've not seen it. People who are consistently late continue being consistently late throughout the rest of their existence. It's because it's become an ingrained pattern of lifestyle within them. And, and so when you go through this dating process, when you, when you were getting to know your wife or when you were getting to know your, your, your husband, part of that dating process should be deciding, can I live with these things that, that are, exist in, my, in this other person? Because there are some things you just can't, you can't deal with. And there are some things that we learn to accommodate and we learn to accept within the other person. If, if not, the marriage isn't going to thrive the way that it should. But things like showing up on time really is a stronghold in, in people's lives. It doesn't just magically change. But does that mean you just do nothing? Because 60% of the issues that you face in marriage will never make any headway. That's kind of depressing, isn't it? Okay, I'm just quoting statistics here. Don't throw stones at me, okay? So, but does that mean you do nothing? That, I, don't, I don't think that's the case. I don't think we just give up on trying to be an influence in our relationship and to see growth in our relationship. Um, tonight, we're going to be looking at a text which you probably do not think of when you think of marriage texts. But there are four principles embedded into this text that apply to this issue of trying to change our spouse in our marriages. <clears throat> and, and so what I'd like us to do is to turn to Matthew chapter number seven, okay? Is that, the, is that the text you guys were thinking I'd be preaching on tonight, Matthew chapter number seven? Probably not, right? <laughs> okay, so we are actually going to read this together, 
But every time you see the word brother, I want you to substitute the word spouse, okay? Every time you see the word brother, I want you to substitute the word spouse. And no, I'm not making a new Bible translation. But your spouse is your brother in Christ, right? If he's here, okay? So, but your spouse falls into this category. Let's go and start reading Matthew chapter 7, verse number 1. Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy spouse's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy spouse, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy spouse's eye. This text is a condemnation of hypocritical judgment. It starts off with some of the most well-known words in our secular society today. Judge not that ye be not judged. Okay? But is that really what Jesus is saying, not to judge in any circumstances ever? That's not the teaching of Jesus. In fact, in John chapter 6, he says, judge righteous judgment. Jesus was not telling us don't judge. He was not telling us, because what is, actually, let's back up. What does it mean to judge? The word judge means to discern. That's its root meaning, to decide, to, to look at the evidence and, and come to a conclusion. Is it wrong to be discerning? Is it wrong to come to conclusions about things? No, it is not. But what Jesus is, is arguing against is a way of judging that isn't godly, that isn't right. And when you look at differences between two different groups of people, when there are conflicts, it's very easy to look at the problems that the other person has and write them off and think, oh, their problems are just so great and so bad that I can't, I can't handle this. And when it comes to marriage, those faults become a mountain, do they not? Right? They grow when you are living together 24-7 every single day, day in and day out, and you see their faults on a daily basis. And so the principles that are found in this text, they do apply to the way that we interact with our husbands and with our spouses. Now, if you're not married, the truths that are presented here also apply, right? Because this text isn't specifically about marriage. They apply to any relationship that we have with other people, any other person that we, that we are in communication with and that we have a relationship with. But I want to drive four principles from this text and apply them to this topic of marriage. The first principle that we're going to see is found in verse number two, and this is the principle of fairness. The principle of fairness. Okay, let's read verse 2. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. Okay, Jesus is teaching in this, this verse that the extent that you judge other people is the standard by which you will be judged as well. And if you have that in mind, how are you going to judge other people? You're going to want to be more fair. You're going to be, want, to be, want to be more charitable, more forgiving, more loving to other people because you will be judged by the same standard. And so the question we need to ask ourselves within our marriages is, am I being fair towards my spouse? This is one of the reasons I gave you the sheet this morning. There's, there's other reasons, okay? 
on your sheet that you had, maybe it's in your mind because you didn't get the paper, okay? I asked you to fill out on the left-hand column all of your spouse's faults, right? And on the right-hand column, you were supposed to fill out whose faults? Not mine. Okay, your own, okay, so your own faults on the right-hand side. The goal of that exercise was to help you see how easy sometimes it is to point out the faults in our spouse. How many, I won't ask, okay, but how many of us came up with a longer list on our spouse's column than we did in our own column? Maybe it's not all of us, but some of us would struggle with this, and it's easier to point out the things that are wrong in somebody else than it is to see the things that are wrong in our own lives. And so we, we judge our spouse. We aren't charitable. We aren't fair towards our spouse. Uh, the word to judge literally means to form a critical opinion, whether positive or negative, by examining, examination or scrutiny. I said it, meant, it is the same word for discerning. But if you do a study in, on judging in the Bible, you'll find that Jesus is telling us not to judge hypocritically. When we have problems in our own lives, and we, and we are easy on ourselves, but hard on our spouse, we are judging hypocritically. How many of us take seriously the, own, the struggles that we have every single day? How many of us really see them for what they are? The, the way that we treat our wife, the way that we treat our husband, I don't think most of us ha have clear sight when it comes to that. A lot of us were very easy to see what is going on in their life, but excuse what is going on in our lives. And verse 2 tells us that we should be reasonable and fair in the way that we judge, because to that level that we judge, we will be judged. So when it comes to marriage, it becomes so easy to become focused on our spouse's faults that we don't even see our own faults. <clears throat> when it comes to pointing fingers, we can easily see the problems in others, but we're blind to our, to our own. So I, I challenge you, when it comes to the fairness of our marriages, to ask yourself a couple questions here. The first question that you need to ask yourself is this. Am I being fair in my judgment of my husband or my spouse? Maybe you are, and maybe there are some real issues that need to be dealt with. Uh, this is principle number one because we need to lay a foundation, okay? Um, I've, I've thought of this, this illustration. I don't know why my mind thinks weird, but uh, if, you, if you eat a bowl of ice cream every night, okay, is it fair for you to judge your husband for doing the same thing? Maybe? No? Okay. So, no, it's kind of not. If you, if you expect something out of him, you need, you need to hold yourself to the same standard when it, when it comes down to eating ice cream, okay? Um, but, but hold yourself to the same standard. Be fair in the way that you approach your husband. The second question we should ask ourselves is this. Am I giving grace? Am I giving grace? Think about how much grace God has given us. When Jesus Christ died for our sins, did any of us deserve that? No. Jesus Christ loved us, and he, and he offered us grace freely given to us. Sometimes people are just having a bad day. So it's not fair to latch on to the one or two times that somebody has a really bad day and they act in a way that is... That is that you don't like, and to blow that out of proportion. Sometimes there's a ton of baggage that people have to work through, and we don't understand all of that. We don't see all of those things. And so we are uncharitable in the way 
that we estimate, that we judge, that we look at other people. We aren't understanding. We all have struggles, but am I willing to love, to forgive, and to overlook things in people's lives? What does the Bible say? Love covers a multitude of sins, okay? Love is willing to show grace when the other person isn't perfect because they're not. Grace is favor that we don't deserve. And your husband, he may not deserve that grace, but that's why it's grace, because he doesn't deserve it. You offer grace to him. Maybe, maybe he is a slob and doesn't pick up his socks off the floor, okay? Um, Daniel, you're smiling. No, okay. So, <laughs> but in light of all that you have been forgiving, can we not also extend forgiveness to our spouse? Am I being fair? The third question I want to ask under this is, am I being reasonable? Okay, am I being reasonable? Sometimes you might see something as a problem, but actually it's just another way of doing things, right? Um, I don't know how you mow your lawn. How many of you mow your lawn in a square pattern going around like this? Nope, okay, Pastor Carson says no, horrible. Luke does, okay? How many of you go in straight lines back and forth? Okay, crisscross patterns. Okay, so that, that's Alice back there, right? We all have different ways of doing things. And if you're Pastor Carsey's, you're looking at Luke and saying, he's horrible at taking care of his lawn because he goes in a square pattern, right? Okay, and you might be right, okay? So, but the, the question is this, am I being reasonable? Maybe you just don't see why the person did what they did. Why, why they chose to make the decisions that they made. And I think a lot of people cast judgment largely because they just don't see all of the evidence. They don't know all the things. I, this is especially true in churches, right? Do you think pastors are gonna go around telling the whole church every single time whenever there's a problem, this is why we handled this situation the way that we did? We'd have hour-long business meetings every single time something needed to be done. It can't be done that way, right? And you don't always know all the information, but to run off half-cocked assuming that you do is not just, it's not reasonable, it's not fair. And so the question is, you need to ask yourself is, am I being reasonable toward my spouse? You may not have all of the facts. You may not know all the details. How many times have we gotten angry at our spouse for being late only to find out that the car broke down or there was a traffic jam on the road or the baby had a blowout on the way out the door, right? Has that ever happened, ladies? Okay, you know? And we, 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 we judge people for being late to show up to things and we don't know all of these facts and we aren't being reasonable towards them. And so in our marriages, when we, when we make form our estimations and our views of our spouse, we need to be reasonable in understanding why they did what they did. Um, I, I recommend um, when you are trying to work on communication with your own marriage, asking clarifying questions. If somebody does something or says something and you think it sounds really, really bad, okay, ask questions like, is this what you meant when you said this? Is this what you intended when you did this? Were you thinking about this when you did these actions? Okay? We need to be fair. We need to be reasonable in trying to change our spouses. The second principle is found in verses 3 through 4, and that is the principle of observation. It says, And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? 
Oftentimes, when we are upset at our spouse, all we ever focus on is what they have done wrong. That becomes our all-consuming focus. And he asks the question, why do you behold? Why are you gazing at the moat that is in your brother's eye and you're ignoring the things that are in your own eye? Um, if, if you become so focused on these things, if you think about them, you stew over them, and you talk about them constantly, that it's going to make you feel miserable. It's just going to eat away at you personally. And really, we talk about meditation. Meditation is an important skill to develop in our walk with the Lord, meditating on the Word of God, right? We're very good at meditation, but usually it's the wrong things we're meditating on. We are very good at meditating on all the bad things that have ever happened to us. I have mentioned that women are specifically geared to do this, okay? Women struggle with letting things go that are in the past because they're kind of like a computer. You remember this illustration? They're like a Mac that can handle it, okay? Where you've got multiple windows open, and you might minimize it, but they're still there. They're still running in the background, and they're ready to pop up at any moment's notice, okay? Men generally are like, we put things in boxes, and they're quarantined and separated. We're PCs. Women are Macs, okay? So that means women are better, okay? So, you know, but that's just how their brains operate is they, they've, got it, they've got it in their mind all the time, and, and all it takes is a trigger to bring those things back to their memory, right? But it is a process of meditation. We are going over it in our mind. We are looking at it. We are beholding it, just like the screen on the computer. And he asks this, why are you looking at his faults or her faults and not looking at your own? So the problem is we can oftentimes lose sight of our own problems. Imagine, if you will, for a moment, that you live in a house that lives in a flood zone. And the lady across the street is uh, standing outside of her house, and the floodwaters are coming down, and she doesn't seem to be worried. And you're screaming and you're yelling from your upstairs window saying, lady, the, your, your house is going to get washed away, not seeing that maybe she's got a barricade, so the water's going to go off around. And then you start walking downstairs and you go and you hear this splish, splash, splish, splash. What happened? The whole time you were focused on the other lady's house, making sure she knew that there was floodwaters coming, the floodwaters came and they swept into your house and flooded your own house. We can become tunnel, we can get tunnel vision where we don't see anything else. We don't see what's going on in our own lives because we're so focused on what's going on in the other person's life. If you focus on your spouse's problems, you can easily become blind to your own. Our own house can be flooded because we just don't see, okay? So you can lose sight of your own problems, but you can also lose sight of what truly matters. Colossians 3, verse 2. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. If my eyes are on my spouse's problems, are they on things above? By default. Where does my spouse live? Not on Mars, okay? They live on Earth. They're here. This is the here and now. And if my focus, my attention, my gaze is on their faults, then I am not lifting my eyes up to what truly matters in life. My eyes aren't where they should be. Why beholdest thou the moat that is in thy brother's eye and considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? So we can lose sight of our own problems, but we can also lose sight of what's truly important. I become earthly-minded and not heavenly-minded. And this really comes down to a trust issue. 
Can I trust God with, my, with the faults of my spouse? Can, can I believe that he is able to fix those problems? Okay, I already pointed out 60% of them ain't going to change. And you know what? Most likely you ain't going to be the one to change them. Okay? The, the problems that your spouse has are only going to be able to be changed by God. God has to do that work of change in their lives. So the question is, where is my focus? Am I able to look to God and trust him with this matter? Or am I so focused on my brother's faults that I don't see my own and I don't see what truly matters in life? So that's the second principle. Third principle is the principle of dealing with self. Verse number five. Thou hypocrite. What's the next word? First, okay? Very first thing. First, cast out the beam out of thine own eye. Before we can ever be used or hope to be used by God to help our spouse grow, to see change in their life, the first thing we have to do is we have to fix our own problems. Okay, this is why it's so dangerous to become, to be so focused on their problems because we lose sight of our own problems. We can't fix our own problems. But first, he says, to fix your own problems. Relationships involve two people, you and your spouse. And to be honest, you may not be able to do anything about your spouse, but there is one person that you can take care of in that relationship. You, right? In almost every marriage problem, almost every, both people are at fault to some extent. So there is usually something you can do to improve in that relationship. I've used this phrase before, be the change that you want to see in your marriage. Best way to influence somebody is to model it, to be what they need to be before them, to set the example before them. I listened to an, ish, an interview with uh, Dr. Gary Thomas recently on this issue, and he told the story of a wife who was so frustrated because her husband was always gone fishing and hunting um, all during fishing season, all during hunting season he was gone, and then when, he, when it wasn't hunting and fishing season, he was constantly at work, and he never had time for them. He was emotionally and he was physically absent in their marriage. And he was consumed with his work. So she made the choice to ask what he calls the magic question, which he didn't necessarily advise everybody do, but in her case it worked, okay? Her question was this, what do you want me to do for you that I am not doing currently? Okay, what, what does that put the focus on? That question puts the focus on what can I change in this relationship? What can I do? And his first response was to tell her, go make the, sure the dishes are cleaned, okay? Imagine this guy who's never home, never lifts up a finger to uh, mow the lawn or vacuum or wash a single dish in his life, but he says, woman, go, make, go do the dishes, right? Okay, how's she going to respond? She's angry, right? Okay, you ladies, are you angry? No, okay. So you're fuming. She's fuming, and she was. She was angry, but she did it, okay? And she continued to ask the same question. Um, obviously, it aggravated her, but she, but she tried to stick with the plan. She did what he asked, and eventually later, he pointed out a problem that she had with their daughters, and it was a problem that they had with one of her daughters. He was able to see it when she wasn't able to see it, and she was able, because of that, to repair her relationship with that daughter and see some actual growth. And over time, he began to notice the change within her. And he began to ask questions. And he began to desire to work on marriage. 
And the testimony was that, that they had been married for 44 years and this was the best year of their life because she had taken these steps to improve their marriage. It all boils down to this. She put a focus on changing what she could actually change herself and not her husband because she can't, you can't really make people change. You can try, you can encourage, you can try to help them, but you can't really make people change. A marriage is based on two people. So I want to give you this, this encouragement when it comes to trying to change your spouse. Marriage is based on, on two people. So when one of them takes steps to improve their side of the marriage, the marriage automatically is always better because somebody has improved at least half of that equation. So your marriage will be better even if your spouse never admits that he was wrong or never takes the steps to fix it because you have a clean conscience you are now free to have a positive influence in that relationship. So the marriage is automatically improved just by improving one half of that equation. The second word of encouragement that I want to give you is that you might just influence them to change. Uh, 1 Peter 3, verses 1 and 2. I've preached on this multiple times, but the idea that Peter is talking about is a, a saved wife and an unsaved husband. And he, and he, points, to her, he points out to her that by her actions... Her husband might just be one. Now, if that truth is true of a lost husband, isn't it true also of a saved husband? When you are living the way God expects you to live as a wife or the way God wants you to be as a husband, that will have an influence on your spouse. Um, traditionally, they, they say that when a wife gets saved, a lot of times the husband doesn't get saved till much later. And if he does, I've heard the testimony that it's because he saw a change in her, right? However, when a husband gets saved, the whole family tends to go to church and start getting on fire for the Lord and start growing in their relationship because you do have an influence one way or the other. Nagging rarely accomplishes its goal, but seeing the change in you can help change that situation. It can open up opportunities for the conversations that need to be had. It can inspire them to want to be different when they see your walk before them. I think of a simple illustration. A husband, maybe he doesn't do his devotions. He doesn't walk with the Lord. And the wife chooses that she's going to be faithful. She's going to consistently do her devotions. And he sees the change that is occurring in her life. He sees her faithfulness. He sees her passion for God over time. And every time he sees that, every morning he gets up and he gets his coffee and he walks out the door and, and doesn't do his devotions. He sees the example that she has set. And it reminds him, hey, you probably should be doing this as well. And so she has the opportunity to have an influence with her husband by setting an example. So how do we deal with our own problems? Okay, this is pretty easy, pretty basic, but I'm not going to ignore it, okay? How do we deal with our own problems? First of all, we need to confess them. 1 John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If I have problems, if I'm struggling with a certain sin in my life, a bad response pattern in my life, I confess it to God and say, God, this is sin. I agree with you. This is wrong. That's the first step. Secondly, I accept God's forgiveness. I don't live under the blame and the guilt of that. If I've taken the steps to make these things right, I don't need to live under condemnation. I preached on this this morning. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ. I don't have to live under that. I am accepted in the beloved. 
So I accept God's forgiveness. But then I need to work towards having a clear conscience. In Acts 24, verse 16, Paul said, And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Confession is important when it comes to our relationship with God, but, but there is something more. If we have sinned against our spouse, if you've sinned against your spouse, you can empty your conscience by going to them and confessing that fault, making those things right. He may not respond the way that you want him to, but then you have a second opportunity to have a clear conscience. If, if you explode with tears or angry words or throwing dishes, uh, you need to go back to step one, okay? <laughs> so, but in our relationship, it is important to have a clean conscience towards people. Make right the things that we have done wrong. And just coming to your, your husband or your wife and saying, hey, honey, I'm sorry, I was wrong. That step right there opens up so many doors to have the conversations that you need to have to improve your marriage. So the fourth principle was the principle of dealing with yourself. The, fifth, the fourth principle in verse number five is the principle of influence. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then, and what's the next word? I didn't hear it. Then, okay, there you go. And then, okay, first take care of yourself. But do you stop there? Say, okay, I took care of myself, that's all I'm gonna do, right? No, that's not what Jesus says. He says, shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. <clears throat> At that point, once you've dealt with yourself, you know that you are walking with the Lord. You have been fair. You have had your eyes and trust on the Lord and not on your spouse's faults and not on things that don't matter. You have um, dealt with yourself. Then you are in the right position to be able to be an influence to your spouse. I change the word here because you can't change your spouse. Only God can do that, but you can influence them for change, right? That's all any of us are hoping to do is to influence people for change. When I get up and I preach the word of God, I can't make you go home and do the things that I say, can I? No, you wouldn't want me to either, okay? So, but I can hope to influence you. I can hope to inspire you to convince you that this is something you should do in your life, to show you that this is something God says you should do in your life. But I can't make that happen. I can influence you in the way that I interact with you. And, and if, if, I've, if I have been a hypocrite, if I have been judgmental, if I have been nagging, if I have not dealt with my own problems, are you ever going to listen to what I have to say? No, you're gonna discount what I have to say. So you deal with yourself first, but then you have the opportunity to be an influence to help them deal with their own problems. So I think, first of all, we need to ask ourselves, why is it that you want to change your spouse? If your motive for changing your spouse is to get the love that you think you deserve, what do we call that? Selfishness, okay, there's a psychological term, narcissism, okay? It's all about you. Everything becomes all about you in your relationship. If it's all about you, then you're not, you're not operating from the proper perspective. You want to be a help to help your brother get cast out the moat out of his eye, okay? That's, that's the goal here. If it's all about you, if it is all about you, but if your desire is to influence your spouse to become more like Christ, that's a godly pursuit. 
I think a lot, of, a lot of women, a lot of husbands, they pick at their spouse and all the negative things that they see because it rubs them the wrong way. And so if I am trying to change my spouse just merely to make my life easier, to get, get it so that I am not aggravated anymore, that is not a sufficient enough reason to pursue change in my spouse. I should be wanting to see them change to be more like Christ. Seeing change in your spouse and helping them grow in the Lord, that's an admirable goal as long as you're growing with them and it's done in the right way. Then how are we going to accomplish this? How, how can you be an influence in your spouse's life? I've been hitting on this a lot, but the first point is communication. Communication is key, okay? Communication needs to be done, though, in the right way and at the right time. I, if you want, go ahead and refresh those nine principles of communication that I preached the other day. And then go into Proverbs and look for the other 15 or so that I didn't preach, okay? Um, <clears throat> you, if you want to see growth in your relationship, you have to communicate. Um, sometimes there are issues which you can choose to overlook and you can choose to forbear. Okay, my husband, not my husband, your husband, rolls his toilet paper the wrong way. Is that really an issue that you need to have a serious discussion about? No. Can't you just learn to forbear and overlook that? Some people can't, okay? But can't you learn to forbear and to overlook that, that issue in their life? 1 Peter 4 verse 8 says, And above all things have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. But if there is an issue that continually comes up, that bugs you, depresses you, hurts you, and you cannot get past it, okay? That's the key here. You must communicate it. You've got to talk about it. If you don't, there's going to be serious problems in your marriage. They, they, they are gonna be there because not communicating it, not dealing with it, means you automatically are going to become bitter. You are automatically going to become angry and it will destroy your relationship over time. So communicate. Secondly, be an example and trust God with the results. Again, 1 Peter 3, verses 1 and 2, without the word, he may be one. Your example can have an influence on changing your spouse. Thirdly, pray for your spouse, okay? This one, I could go to any number of verses throughout the Bible to talk about praying for people and our spouses are people, right? Okay, so we could talk about praying for our spouse, but I'm not even gonna flip to those verses. Prayer is a natural extension of your trust in God, if you're trusting God to intervene and to deal with the situation, you're going to be praying for your spouse. But how many of us are doing that in a practical way? 1 Peter 5 verse 7 says, Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. The honest truth is the burdens that you bear, oftentimes they're too much for you to bear on your own. So cast them upon God and let him help you carry them. Fourth point I put in here is let him bear his own consequences, okay? Galatians chapter 6 starts off with uh, the, the idea that we are to bear one another's burdens. There are two verses use the same phrase, but I think it's verse number 5 says, um, every man shall bear his own burdens, right? That's the idea. Of he, he has a responsibility for his own actions. He has to bear his own burdens. And sometimes if you're constantly bailing your husband out, we'll never learn from his mistakes. We've talked about this with, with uh, leadership within the home. Your husband doesn't know how to lead the home properly. Almost guaranteed, almost every single husband in our culture today does not know how to lead their home properly. 
and they're going to make mistakes. But if you as the wife sweep in and save him from those mistakes, will he ever learn from that? No, he won't. It's kind of like a mother who is trying to teach her child to walk, and every time he starts to fall, she grabs him real quick and picks him up. He's never going to learn to walk. You have to put your kid down and let him make those steps sometime, or it isn't going to happen. Let him bear the consequences. Practical example, if your husband comes to you and he is attacking, he is violent, he is angry, okay, here's one easy consequence. I can't talk to you while you're like this. I'm going to go into the room, and when you can calm down, we will finish this conversation. Okay, that's a consequence. He, ha he is learning that communication cannot happen if he's going to come on the warpath and steamroll you in the conversation. Okay? It doesn't shut down communication, it just delays it until he corrects his tone. <clears throat> so creating the right environment for conversation is, is very important. The reason wives feel like they can't have an influence on their husbands a lot of times, or vice versa, is because there is a breakdown in communication. There isn't security, there isn't safety, there isn't the type of relationship that they feel that they can communicate, they can have an influence on their spouse. Your wife will never feel like she can talk to you if she doesn't feel safe. Her feeling of security ultimately falls on you to create, for her to be able to have that influence. If every conversation you ever have ends in an argument, they will not feel safe to talk to you. If you dismiss or attack, they will not feel safe to talk to you. If you use what they say as a weapon, they will not feel safe to talk to you. <clears throat> they won't feel like they have a safe place when you prioritize other things over them as well. And these are things that foster a good atmosphere for conversation. No-win scenarios. Have you ever been in a no-win scenario? Okay, like the claw game at the, at the Walmart? That's a no-win scenario, okay? <laughs> no, but no matter what you choose to do, it's always your fault. You're always wrong. If you choose to go to the store, you're wrong. If you choose not to go to the store right now, you're wrong. And they treat you like that, and they punish you because of it. That kind of thing doesn't foster a good environment for conversations, for influence within the relationship. Defensiveness does not foster communication. Communication is a two-way street. And you have to be concerned not only with what you said, but how it was uh, received. Men a lot of times feel attacked when things are brought up, when it's just a point-blank statement like, you never do this, okay? To a man, that becomes an interpretation of an attack. And they automatically defend. But defensive barriers um, shut down conversation as well. Couching statements and words like, when you do this, it makes me feel like this, is better. Because to be honest, he can't attack your feelings. It might be a perception issue, okay? But if, and if he does, he's not ready to talk. Confession, admitting your part in the breakdown of the communication can help diffuse that defensiveness. Asking questions rather than making accusations. But then work on making the solution a collaborative effort. The idea here is you are partners together. You should be working forward in trying to improve your marriage together as a group. So now the sheet that I gave you, okay? The main reason I gave that to you is so you could see whether you are so focused on your, on your spouse's problems that you don't even see yours. That, that was the main reason. But the second reason that sheet has been given to you is because we need to make a choice 
to tear those things up, to forgive and to love our spouse, to not stand in judgment over them. Because to, to be honest, we're all, we're all at fault. We all have problems. And our marriages will never progress if those things become an obstacle and a barrier to our relationship. We need to take, if there are important things on that column, okay, pray about the items on that list. Trust God with the items that are on that list. Decide what's important to talk about and then approach the conversation in the right way. But then throw the sheet away and ask God to give you a forgiving heart from there. Let's go ahead and stand. We'll have a time of invitation tonight. It's very easy to focus on what everybody else is doing wrong and to forget where our part in the problems. But we need to take these things seriously. I'm just challenging you tonight. Let's work towards reconciliation in our relationships and let's work towards growth in our relationships. Campers, don't forget, 6 a.m. in the morning, no eight pairs of shoes.